Hey friends, I wanted to let you know about an awesome event that's happening at General Assembly at Pont City Market on November 7th, so mark your calendars. It's called Real Food, Real Stories, and it's going to feature the stories of triumph and hardship and entrepreneurialism and starting a business and things that didn't work and a whole lot more. And they're all the stories from local business heroes like Steve Kars, who's one of the co-founders of King of Pops, Jennifer Heidegger Kendrick of Giving Kitchen and Staple House, and Zach Harrison of Fresh Harvest. And I'll actually be moderating the conversation, and we'd love to see you there. And tickets are actually free, and you can register online. And it's actually a bit.ly link, so follow along with me real quick. It's bit.ly slash realfoodrealstories, or you can head to the episode page for more details. General Assembly is a global network of campuses located in over 20 cities worldwide, offering free of rent. I'm going to start over. General Assembly is a global network of campuses located in over 20 cities worldwide, offering free events and multi-hour workshops and multi-week part-time and full-time courses in design, tech, and business optics. And you can learn more at General Assembly, which is actually generalassemb.ly. Welcome to the Atlanta Foodcast. Stories from the people who are making Atlanta the greatest city for eaters. I'm your host, Ben Getz. So something that most may not realize is truly how farmers and restaurants work together, sometimes on a daily basis. And the aspects of a farmer working to produce and a chef working directly with a farm or farmer to build their menus is something that's truly beautiful. So thus, welcome Lauren Cox and Bruce Logue to the show. Lauren runs the Farm to Restaurant program with Georgia Organics, and Bruce is the executive chef at Bocalupo, and the two have worked together through many avenues over the years. And for this episode, we're focused on one important campaign that Lauren is at the helm of with Georgia Organics, and it's called Farmer Champion. So the three of us sat down for a practical conversation of the practical side of the bond between restaurant and farmer. Here they are. I really love that the, the conversation that we're about to get into is is probably one of the more different ones um, and a lot more in the direction that I think this podcast has really gone. I think the most interesting thing about the the food space and the culinary community of Atlanta is it's really different. And I think a lot of people recognize that, not only in the stage that it's in, but also just what it's like to be either a restaurateur or a business owner or a chef owner in a city like Atlanta. Um, and the, the space to, to try new things and, and how a lot of this is, you know, orbiting around the idea that we live in a very verdant agriculture forward state is really awesome. So I think this conversation happening is is really wonderful and probably, I mean, for me, super educational. And I think for a lot of other people, it's going to be pretty education forward, which I really dig. Um, but before we move into all of the all of the details, you guys are not going to escape how I mm. uh, torture all of my guests. So <laughs> you have to tell me, and we're going to start with Lauren, okay. but you have to tell me who cooked for you growing up and what kind of cook was he or she? Okay. Um, so my family is a huge food family. It's not a surprise that I got into this, this field. Um, my mom always cooked on the holidays. So it depends really on the time of year, but, um, my mom was always the holiday cook and what she would do is cook Filipino food. So I'm Filipino, um, American. Uh, my dad is Caucasian. He's from Arkansas. Um, and my mom is from Manila. 
and that the holidays were kind of when she would cook for for us the type of food that Filipinos eat um, but on the regular you know my dad would kind of be the one in the mm. kitchen and he would do like steak and potatoes <laughs> nice <laughs> steak with ketchup um, yeah. was a big staple is there a better way to eat a steak I mean I don't, now I say yes <laughs> I, I would say yes <laughs> as a kid though you know it's yeah. like man you guys had ketchup like it just makes everything so it nice makes it so good it does you know yeah so what, yeah. what kind of eater were you though um i loved salads but i also would eat like an entire bag of jalapeno chips and drink an entire like container of coffee at age 15. at 11 i wanted to conquer the grapefruit and so i like forced myself to eat grapefruits because i was like i'm definitely I got to, so I was a pretty like, um, experimental yeah. open eater. Yeah. That's good though. Grapefruits is uh, one of those help you not die fruits. Yeah. It's good. Like yeah. everything about it is good for you. Yeah. yeah. Um, I like, I just like coming to food. I think I've always liked coming to food with knowing what its purpose was outside of just sustaining me. So if you're going to be, you know, some greasy bar food, that's great. As long as you own it. And if you're going to be some super expensive, you know, $45 steak, you better mm -hmm. be the best. Yeah. So that's actually, that's actually kind of cheap for a steak. Oh yeah. <laughs> okay. Like 80, whatever. Yeah. I'm on a different budget. No. <laughs> oh man. It's just one of my favorite questions to ask people. I love to like get into that headspace of like, man, what did I eat when I was a kid? Cause it's usually never at all the same. Like, you know, I was talking to my kids about, um, God, what are they? The the little Debbie um, like Christmas tree. Uh, they were mm. like the little cake things that come in like two in a pack. I was like, we used to eat like a whole box of these. Like we would each get one and you'd eat oh, the yeah. whole box like oh, yeah. at the skate park. You know, like that's oh, yeah. what we did when we were kids. And if I did that now, like I'm pretty sure like I'd rupture my spleen or yeah. something like my arm would fall off or I'd immediately. You know, so just I was like that. I was like that as a kid. I would eat the little fun. Debbies, but I would microwave them so that Whoa. the interior would soak into the cake Ooh. and and make it good. So wow. that's the type of eater that I was. Yeah. It's like I little little Debbie gourmet. Yeah. It's really yeah. That's that's high that's that's like really highbrow. I like that. Um but Bruce, same question to you, man. Tell me who cooked for you growing up and what kind of cook was he or she? Well I was fortunate uh enough to grow up in southwestern Montana. So Wow. Wow. Yeah, we had a you know, there's a huge hunting culture. I mean it's just kind of part of the that time of year, this time of year really. Um you know if you live where we live most people hunt and so um you ate a lot of wild game deer elk um some people back then ate buffalo that's cool and um so that was that was a big part of our our diet and um you know wild game is is not super easy to cook um it's not like the stuff that comes out of like new zealand nowadays where it's you know it's it's fed a very nutritious uh, yeah. diet there's plenty of you know elaborate there's, yeah there's a yes. lot of fat on the animal they don't right. run much <laughs> they don't have to escape and do all that yeah so it's different so it was um challenging to to cook that my mom was a okay cook but she'd get distracted and burn stuff and overcook stuff and forget <laughs> about stuff so you know there were some pretty gnarly yeah. <laughs> meals growing up um but we ate a lot of wild game and um you know my stepdad growing up had cooked wild game his whole life so 
he had some good recipes for making that stuff um, taste good. And um, aside from that, it was a lot of junk food. I live 26 miles out of town, out of the town wow. that I grew up in, technically. Wow. So, you know, shopping was one of those things where you went to IGA, you know, week once a week. You had a big yep. pantry, a lot of a lot of pantry stuff. Mm-hmm. And you know, there was a, a company called Schwann's. Yes. And they would come. I, I grew up with Schwann's. Yeah. So they yes. would come like I think it was once a week, maybe once every two weeks, and you'd buy all this frozen stuff off the truck. And I don't remember. Did, did you actually? I don't remember if you ordered it or did they just have it and they're like, "Hey, here's the sheet," and then you choose what you want. How did that work? I don't remember because you know there was. No internet. Right. And, uh, <laughs> I remember it was magical yeah, though when I was a kid. No, yeah, there it was were like no a cell yellow truck, man. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know exactly how we did it, but I know there were a lot of frozen pizzas and nice. a lot of frozen burritos and a lot of like you know kind of. Does this place still exist? Does this oh, yeah. company still exist? still around. They're yeah. still in the game, probably in the Midwest. And um, yeah. so I mean, we we didn't you know, we had a garden, uh, but in Montana, you where we lived, it was you know. It's hard. Yeah. You know, growing is, is a short season and it's yeah. very right. specific. A lot of root vegetables. Root vegetables, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I did not eat great growing up as far as, like, um, nutrition. And, right. Um, but there were a lot of food memories, you know? Yeah. yeah. Hunting and, and butchering and, you know, cooking that stuff and learning what tastes good and what doesn't and what works and what doesn't. Like, yeah. Yeah. You know, those are things that I think kind of stay with you. Big time. Yeah. I remember helping uh, friends of mine when I was in college. Uh, we went turkey hunting. And I wasn't the one to actually, we were bow hunting and I wasn't the actual, actually the one to kill the turkey, but I helped dress the turkey mm. and then we ate it. I think it was the day after, maybe two days after, um, is unlike anything I'd ever had. Just growing up with like the pre brined butterball turkey, yeah. you know, shrink wrapped and then you just thaw it out and it goes in the oven and it's amazing. Yeah. That's the flavor of turkey. Like not even close to the same. It yeah. was unbelievable. Yeah. It, it, it was, it was kind of hard to recognize what yeah. I was eating. Mm. So wild game, like, man, it is, it, especially if it's something where you can buy it in the grocery store or you can hunt it and dress it yourself and yeah. then prepare it for a meal. It's you, you'll have very strange, like duality of memory going on of like, this mm-hmm. is what I know, but like, this is not what I'm tasting. You're it's, eating, it, you're eating a super athlete. Yes. Think of it that way. Yes. Those yeah. animals perform. It's, a, it's perfect. Yes. And fight for their lives. So, I mean, that's what you're eating. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and then you're absorbing pretty, their essence. Pretty good right. fuel. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I thought a lot when I was in college. I was like, I just want to absorb the essence. I just want to do what I want to do. Let me absorb this moose yes. essence. <laughs> um, well, let, let's shift into to talking about you guys and especially how you guys are working together because this is something that I think is, is so interesting. As, as I've gotten more acquainted with Georgia Organics very broadly and also getting involved in a lot more specific avenues of the organization, um, what you guys are doing specifically and what we're talking about today uh, is a program called Farm to Restaurant. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I think a lot of people might hear that and they'll probably be able to, you know, get some sort of idea they'll have some semblance of an idea of what that is but um but lauren give us an idea of let's start with what is georgia organics and then let's specifically like get into what is like the program of farm to restaurant and what does it represent what does it do yeah okay so um georgia organics is um, a nonprofit organization based in georgia and a lot of the work we do is to connect um good food or food from Georgia um, to Georgia families. So whether that's in the farm to school movement or early care and um, learning centers or working with direct farmer services, um, providing people assistance with um, disaster relief from, uh, you know, down south, all the hurricanes that were happening. Um, But we also do 
now we with this program this year i was hired on to kind of give um, direct services to farmers trying to access new markets and revenue streams and I came at it from an angle of having been a farmer. I was a farmer for seven years. Were you really? Yeah, and that's how I know Bruce. Oh my gosh. Were you a farmer here in Georgia? Yeah, so I managed a farm in Athens called Woodland Gardens. um, And Bruce and I met that way. And so we had a business relationship, um, a mutually beneficial, really good, healthy business relationship from farmer to chef for many years. Um, And there is a lot of trust there. And... So I'm so grateful for that. And anyway, yeah, so mm-hmm. we, um, so now I'm working to help kind of facilitate having more of those relationships between farmers and chefs. And that's what the farm to restaurant program is. Um, and then we also have a farmer champion campaign, which is specifically restaurant focused. And that is so that customers can know which restaurants are doing the hard work of sourcing from farms in Atlanta and in Georgia in general. Yeah. Yeah. I I think it's so interesting too. you know, I mean, there's probably a lot of schools of thought or just uh, groups of people as you know, a a lot of people use dining in Atlanta and a lot of other larger cities throughout Georgia as as a pretty main source of entertainment. And I think a lot of people might think that it's still a sexy thing to say like, well, this is farm to table. It's like, well, you might not even know what that actually means. (laughs) Maybe you don't know how a chef actually works with a farmer. And then also the flip side of that, how does a farm actually reach out to work with a chef or a restaurant or a group of restaurants. Um, I felt really uh, very lucky, like privileged earlier this season. I got to go hang out with Zach and Alana at Levity Farm. Mm-hmm. And um, it's just really eye-opening. You know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm very, very thankful that we live in such a city where, you know, we can, we can access this from either the number of farmers markets that I've lost count of, or we can go to a restaurant and then that's just right there on the menu. You can see like, this is where all of our root vegetables came from and all of our greens and, you know, proteins, wherever. Um, and it's, it's always just nice to keep that in perspective of how hard a farmer truly has to work with a chef or a restaurant that's working so hard to feed people. Um, it's a, it's a story that I don't know that a lot of people really, unlock, you know, and understand, or really understand that is, is really in existence. Uh, but Bruce, talk to me about, you know, from, from your perspective of actually, you know, from the, from the restaurant side of things and working with farmers, like what is that like practical application? I think, um, that's a, that's a big question, right? You know, like I think as chefs, usually starting out, your number one priority is, is flavor. And you know, you want things to taste just amazing. And when you're younger, at least most of the chefs that that I know, you weren't necessarily thinking about where it came from or, mm-hmm. you know, did it come from Georgia? Did it come from a farmer that I know? Did it come from an organic source or any of that? You're just like, man, these taste great and I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do that. And it's a lot about you and your technique and what you know and what you can make happen. And um, you get really focused on that. And I think you get hopefully really good at it and making food taste great. Um, I think further down the road, you, you start to realize that like, all right, some things taste better than others, like the same ingredient, depending, you know, where it came from, how long it sat in my walk-in and how far it had to travel. And Mm. all these things you hear along the way about organic and local and, Mm -hmm. you know, the Chez Panisse movement and all this stuff that I was hearing when I was early in, in my career they were just kind of like chatter. They were just like things. Mm-hmm. They didn't matter. They were secondary to flavor and technique and, yeah. you know, like being awesome. Right. Um, they kind of become 
more a part of the conversation. You start listening and it starts to make you wonder. So you, you start tasting things. Like maybe you start working with one of the farmers that has come in occasionally or you go to the farmer's market or somehow you break into that and taste some of that food. And you're hopefully at a point where you can taste that stuff and say, wow, this really does taste better. Like this, this is fresher, this is brighter. You look at the ingredient and you're more motivated by that. The way it looks, the way it feels, kind of how you acquired it. And that process becomes really important. Like, wow, how can I, how can I get more of this in my restaurant and on my menu? Because, you know, it's a fleeting thing. Like really great ingredients, you know, they're changing all the time. They're dying, basically. You get them in, mm-hmm. put them in the walk-in, it's 40 degrees and they're going downhill. Yeah. yeah. So you, you look at your menu and you're like, I got, I got a lot of stuff on this menu. And even if I get everything from a farmer, yeah. how am I going to maintain that? It's like juggling a bunch of balls at one time. Everything needs to be being used yeah. and cycled through and fresh. And then you need to get it again. And, oh, guess what? They can't get that this week. It's this whole big matrix of it's a balance. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's kind of, I guess, the way I look at it. Like that's a little piece of kind of how I got into it or how you most chefs get to that point where they they care about it and it matters and they try and figure out how they're going to apply it to their business because it changes when you're busy if you do 200 covers a night yeah you have 16 items on your menu right believe me that's a lot to manage and maintain and keep up with um and sometimes it's a lot easier to pull the trigger on that 11 o'clock phone call you can make to that broadline produce purveyor it's going to have it there tomorrow by 11 a.m. Mm-hmm. And everything you need in the quantities that you ask for and, you know, an agreeable quality mm-hmm. um, or an acceptable quality, that's an easy call to make. It yeah. takes a lot of stress off a chef when he can walk off the line, do a produce inventory, call it in, and it's going to be there. Yeah. So it, it's, you know. And for less money, too. In, in a lot most, of times, yeah. In most situations, you know, everything in this industry is telling you to do the easiest thing. Um, The rent prices are going up in Atlanta. Overhead is expensive. Labor, there are lots of things. It's very easy to go from making money one night to having another night where you don't make any money. And food costs is something that affects that on the regular, so. Yeah, well, and you know, that's that's an interesting, you know, I mean, that you bring that up, but like, you know, thinking specifically about like the challenges between both, you know, both groups of people, like Lauren, talk to me, you know, from, from your experience, but also like, as this is, you know, you're trying to, to kind of like bring ends to meet with this, like, what are like some of like those main challenges that a farmer would have in terms of like, you know, they get that call of like, I don't have a, you know, mainline, you know, produce guy that can just show up with a truck, but like, I need, you know, however many pounds of arugula by tomorrow for brunch, you know, or eggs or whatever it is. Like, what are some of those other challenges that, you know, might not just be as easily accessed right off the table for people to understand? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, if you're trying to run a farm business and your demographic is restaurants and chefs, you need to figure out where your niche product is and you need to figure out where you can compete with national like produce purveyors. So whether it's something that's seasonal and indicative of the change in the seasons like leeks or ramps or, um, you know, Brussels sprouts or, you know, strawberries, fruit is so indicative of the season and there's a value there. You have to think about those things and where you're going to position yourself because you know that you're probably not going to have enough supply 
for these chefs. So you have to think about it in the way that a chef would think about it. Um, so that also things that you, you know, can um, consistently supply for a season. You know, you want to take some of that pressure off. We like to say that we're not, in a way, you don't want to compete with the national market, but you also need to figure out how your business can be consistent on everything from mm. quantities on a weekly basis to quality, um, all of that stuff. So it helped me being coming as a farmer, coming from someone who was just someone who loved to eat. And, you know, I was just eating at all these restaurants. A lot of farmers don't have the opportunity to do that. So I came from a place of privilege where I could do that economically. Um, but we're trying to kind of think about that in a pointed way with the farms that we're working with, how to strategize to meet the demand. Yeah. And then Bruce, so, you know, knowing like the, the, like kind of how you guys do business here at Bocalupo, um, how do you guys specifically work with farms and farmers? We, um, <coughs> excuse me, sorry. Um, it, it's a, it's kind of a snowball process. You open up and you have a handful of farmers that you've maybe dealt with at another restaurant or that you've had exposure to. And so you call them, right? And depending on what season it is, you're, you're getting whatever you can from them. And, you know, I think you got to take one step back. What kind of restaurant are you? What kind of menu do you have? When I came into this, I knew what I was doing. Like I had 10 things that were going on my menu right out of the gate. And they weren't necessarily reliant on a season. They were things that, you know, they had a long season and I could get some of that stuff. You know, it wasn't really like a seasonal type of dish yeah. per se. Right. Right. So I had this kind of boilerplate, like staple menu that, you know, um, I didn't have to rely too hard on that. So that was part of it. Um, the things that we kind of started doing with farmers were more of like verbal things, like verbal specials and a tasting menu and, you know, seasonal things that we ran, things we run on a risotto that changes constantly. And so mm -hmm. you start plugging them in there, right? So right. somebody walked in with some beets you wanted. Oh, guess what? We're going to do a beet salad tonight. We're going to do whatever. Things like that. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's it's different when you start plugging it into your kind of boilerplate menu if you have yeah. one of those. You know, some guys have a restaurant where it's all like they write the menu every day or every other day or they kind of build it as it comes in. And that's that's amazing to me. How you maintain that is uh, that's a that's a really hard road because as a chef, you have to be there doing that untold, uh, you know, amount of your life needs to be spent doing that. And, you know, you multiply that out over years, that idea of like we write our menu every day, every week, every few days we rewrite and we have this many things and all of it is from farm. When you commit to that level, yeah, man, that is, yeah, that's intense. So our menu was more kind of like I had things I wanted to do that were not necessarily built that way. Yeah. And we plugged in the things that, were more seasonal and more local and more like farm driven mm -hmm. and it kind of gains momentum and then you kind of try and transition that like okay well how can I have this on my menu all the time well I got to be able to change my menu up so we became a little looser with like kind of our ingredient role so you might have a dish that three different greens could plug into exactly, it could be broccoli yeah. rob it could be kale it could be you know any Charged. number of those things where yeah, yeah mm -hmm. you walk in with kale and guess what that's what's going in there. You know yeah. what I mean? You build dishes that are a little looser with that um, ingredient roll call, if you will. Yeah. Uh, things like that. That's kind of how it worked for us in a lot of it. And then the other part of it is, is those things you just can't resist that are just amazing. They're in season. They're perfect. You got a farmer that does it better than anyone. Right. And this time of year, we run this baby for like three months straight. 
You yeah. know what I mean? Like right. Woodland Gardens uh, mixed lettuces. Yeah. When those things are around, man, it's on the menu. Right. But you got to know that one day that's, you know, it's coming to an end and you either have to transition onto something that's not as good or you got to, you know, change the menu to the next greatest thing that time of year. So it's a, it's like an evolution of, of your menu. Like you're constantly, hopefully thinking about ways you can become more involved in, in that kind of, you know, farm, farmer relations, you know, but yeah. You know, it's not easy. Like, I, I don't. No, it's not easy. And a lot of, like you said, I think that the, the, if you look at the number of restaurants that are doing this type of sourcing, it's from chefs who have a maturity level and a knowledge of food that gives them the vocabulary to, to create that kind of dish, you know, that kind of strategizing. And, the, and that takes a lot of time on the chef's part. Um, so we're working to kind of do that too with the program. Yeah. Well, and you know, I mean, I want to, I want to get a little bit more deeper into specifically farmer champions. So I know that you touched on it a little bit, like where are you guys at in the process? Like give us a little bit more of like some of the hard details, like who, I mean, I know that you, you guys are like working with Bruce and Boca Lupo, like how, how's this is kind of taking shape? Yeah. So it was actually kind of crazy when I got into the position, you know, we had these very high level goals. Oh, we're going to like, increase the number of farmers selling to restaurants and we're going to widen the pool of you know restaurants buying as well as like deepen the pool of their purchasing and we're going to award restaurants for it and I was like well how are you going to do that like what does that actually work out to look like and so you know the the most reasonable thing for me to do was to ask the people that I knew were doing it and that involved all the chefs that I had sold to for the last seven years. Mm. And so I called up Bruce, I called, called up Terry Koval from Wrecking Gobar, um, Jarrett Stewart. You know, they all have different models of restaurants too. And right. so we sat down, we pulled, you know, two weeks of invoices from food costs, and then we saw how much their total food costs were. And from that, you kind of saw things like, okay, the you saw who, where people were spending their money. Okay, people are spending their money on cheese, like value-added products that you can like list the farm on the cheese board or the charcuterie. People are spending their money on vegetables that are like highlighted and you can see in the dish. And you could kind of read in between the lines of all of those invoices and understand, oh, the higher the overhead, perhaps there's an issue with supply at this point because you have to you you're walking cooler bottoms out at zero every night so you need to work with a distributor in that case if you're doing 50,000 in two weeks in total food costs so you got to see all this stuff and from that asking like the chefs what is reasonable what do you think farm to restaurant is is it like a percentage of your total food costs and what does that look like is it 10 percent if you're operating at 30% food costs, what what really does that look like to you as someone who's mm. walking the walk? Also, how does it feel versus what's on paper? Because you might think you're doing a lot and actually you are doing a lot. And, you know, so it was like kind of sussing all of that out. Mm. And from there, I created the metrics around what we thought was a reasonable, you know, like what a farmer champion was. So there, there are multiple tiers to it, but really 25% all day. Um, and that's kind of like a food. I think that's kitchen lingo, lingo <laughs> yeah. right? That means like, what does that mean? 
25% cost of goods is pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty. 25% of your total food costs comes from like within Georgia. And yeah. that's like a gold standard for yeah. being like a farm to table restaurant. Um, so that means that you're sourcing at least some protein or some dairy from, from farms within Georgia. Um, so where we are on that right now is that we've worked with these chefs. Um, we've created this decal that's outward facing. So if you're a customer, you can go to a restaurant, you can see that they have this farmer champion logo and it's actually verified. So it's, we wanted it to be, we wanted it to be like a non-paternalistic situation where it didn't matter how much money you put into getting this, you couldn't pay to be on this list other than paying a farmer. So there's no investment, you know, in that way. Um, And where we are right now is we're trying to kind of round up the next quarter of invoices. So we also want to promote consistency with that in mind. So every quarter, we're pulling invoices from these restaurants. Um, and next year, the tiers will be released. So if you have a minimum of 5% sourcing from these invoices, you are a partner, a farmer champion partner, and then you internally have three quarters to decide what you wanna do. Mm. Like, do you, is it your ceiling to be like, only 15% of my business model allows me to do that, so that's what I'm gonna do or do you have the opportunity to move up in your sourcing? I think in general, the goal is to just make chefs more aware and also to see that that kind of sourcing is possible to one degree or another. Right. Um, and, and Bruce, talk to me about that from your perspective. So, you know, why, why is something like Farmer Champion, like wh- what does that mean for you as a chef, as a business owner, like working with your team, but also outwardly facing to your customers who are in your restaurant? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I think what it does is is hopefully legitimizes the farm to table, you know, kind of movement. That word's been around for a long time, and we've all, we've yeah. all used it maybe a little Misused loosely it. sometimes. So, right? so early two thousands. <laughs> yeah, and I think you know it, it it maybe has like a numbing effect now. It's like, well, who isn't farm to table, right? Like right. really, yeah. I think every chef in town's buying something from a farmer. Um, I hope. I mean, it's just, you know, because it's become easier. There are broadline, bigger purveyors that will bring you produce every day that's sourced from a farm in Georgia. You can do that, like, easy. Right. Um, So it's not hard. Um, So if that's the case, then we're all farm to table, right? We're all, like, you know what I mean? Like, there's just, it's kind of like, it doesn't set any kind of, like, standard for you to be able to, to use that that verbiage if that's your thing so yeah i like it because it just kind of it gives people a metric to look at like to say okay well here's where you're at and if you if you feel the need or the desire or this is your thing then you probably want to be up here if there's a metric to measure yourself on like if that's your thing then you better get up there and, right. and it kind yeah. of holds you to that you know what i mean like it, it legitimizes sure. it yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think especially you know for the person who just loves eating brunch but they don't necessarily have a clue where greens actually come from or something like field peas, you know, but I think for people to learn that things are grown and then sourced and then delivered to this restaurant within the, the Georgia state border is, is really like that first step. Cause I think a lot of people are, are relatively uneducated diners. They just know what they like to yeah. eat. They don't necessarily know that what they like to eat comes from someone who grew it or raised it. And then they have to, 
get it ready for, you know, essentially get it like the last mile to get it to service and then how you and your team are preparing that. A lot of that is like lost along the way, you know, and this is the most practical way that I could possibly think for people just to understand, like, here are the, here are the bullet points of what this actually means for someone like Bruce to be a farmer champion. And, um, these are like the practical steps that are essentially taken and, you know, not to add any cliche to it, but like essentially saying like putting money where your mouth is like, this is the most easiest way for people to understand, like, you know, out of, you know, let's say it's 25%, like out of our menu, what you can order off of that, you're supporting Georgia farmers. It's really simple. So, um, I think a lot of people have tried to dress it up in a lot of ways over the years and like saying farm to table just became like less of a, less of a movement and more of just, it became an annoyance for a lot of people. It became a marketing tool. Right. Exactly. And, um, but yeah, I think the, the application of this for restaurants and farmers, uh, throughout the state of Georgia, um, is, is just incredibly pragmatic. Yeah. And I, you know, I think that a lot of, (laughs) it's interesting to talk to, to hear from Bruce about the the taste value um, and the flavor. I think a lot, realistically, in my point of view, a lot of customers nowadays don't care if it's farm to table. You like what you like and you're gonna eat it. But this is, I think that we can't try to make that matter to people. I think what we can do is connect the dots for people and that's different. You know, we don't, we it doesn't have to be about, oh, like a blank, you know, pushing our agenda on people. I think it's just giving people the information about what's happening. And and also saying, hey chefs, you guys are doing again, despite all, you know, arrows pointing to doing the way easier thing, you are doing this and we wanna celebrate you and we want people to know that you're doing that. Right. Um yeah. it's awesome. I think, I think it's, it's so cool just to, I mean, again, I think from an education standpoint, I love the, the way that this works from your side with the organization to Bruce, your side here at the restaurant and how this can, you know, really can become more of like a movement that reverberates out, far outside of Atlanta. You know I mean? I think we're obviously like a lot of what I, you know, tend to have from a story perspective is, you know, something happening here in the, in, in Atlanta specifically, um, I do a really bad job of getting outside the perimeter to work on that. Um, <laughs> But, uh, but, you know, like I think expanding a lot of how food and foodways are happening throughout the entire state of Georgia uh, is really incredible. I've, I've only lived here for maybe seven or eight years. And um, the, the most education that I've gotten in my life about how food is grown and is then purchased and then sold um, mm-hmm. is staggering. And I mean, it, to me, it's fascinating and I love it and it makes me appreciate it even more. And I, I don't care what I have to pay, you know, cause to, to me it's, it's more knowing that that marriage is happening in the background. So, um, I think that's, that's, it's a huge point of pride for living in Georgia. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean like with the, with the last like minute or two here, like tell me what you guys have like going on. Like what's the next big thing? Like how are you guys rounding out the year? Like what can people look for next? Do you want me to go? Let's go, go with Lauren first. Okay. <laughs> um, so we are, yep, we're going to reach out, continue reaching out to the chefs that we've already worked with and try to get kind of a year in the life of sourcing for this Farmer Champion um, campaign. I'm going to be giving, I'm giving Bruce today this Farmer Champion logo. So <laughs> you'll be able to see it if you're a customer or a 
a client of the restaurant, you'll be able to see it maybe on Bruce's truck. <laughs> yeah. But um, he's got one on his forehead right now. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. Both hands. Exactly. <laughs> um, so we were going to get this out so that people can know that this is happening. Um, but we're also hopefully going to do a progressive meet and greet, which is something that I thought of when talking to the chefs about having, you know, for Bruce, he likes it when the farmers show up at the door with the goods. And so I thought, God, like, you know, my neighborhood does this progressive dinner thing. Why don't we get all the farmers to go around and, you know, between 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. on a Monday or Tuesday when people are prepping for service, have all these farmers show up and see what happens. You Mm -hmm. know, you can bring your stuff Um, on the bigger scale. I, you know, I would love to have metrics and create metrics around a bar program like a craft cocktail program because there's it's going to look different the considering the fact that like a lot of bar is citrus and we get a lot of that from florida it'll be less of a percentage of your bar costs but there are people out there that are doing craft cocktail programs with herbs nuts like pecan liqueur fruit And I think that would be really cool to like say, okay, this is what like a craft cocktail locally sourced bar program metric looks Hmm. like. So I just got to get together with some of my bartender friends. (laughs) That's not hard to do. Yeah. (laughs) And see what that's, yeah. Let's try that cocktail again one more time. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you. What percentage of this was, uh, how much, how how much of it can I drink? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Bruce, how about you, man? Uh, I mean, you know, things for us are very seasonal. We're heading into the colder months and, um, it's already kind of like, you know, I did a braise this week already, the first one I've Yum. done in a really long time. And it just it just kind of, you know, like, it's kind of a soul thing. Like, you, you feel it, and you're like, all right, it's time to braise. It's time to make soup. It's time to do heartier dishes. It's time to take the tomatoes off, and you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. So that's kind of how, as far as in regards to this whole conversation, how it, how it works. Um, we're Radicchio. always, yeah, we're always, I've got Castle Franco Radicchio right now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's always kind of like, you know, rolling. It's a it's a seasonal thing, and, and the things you cook change with that, obviously, and the way you cook. Right. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, nothing really changes from year to year. It's just hopefully some other ingredients that are new to the game for us that we haven't used. Um, some old friends will come back, you know, and we'll use them and... Um, but nothing major. The you know consistency is kind of our always our goal. Yeah, you know? that's great. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Um, thank you both for just letting me sit with you and hear a lot of this story specifically. I mean, I I think it's it's so inspiring. And I again, like I just I'm really thankful to be able to learn about this really firsthand. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, thank you very much. So I guess yeah, we'll see you at. Lupo, and I'm sure that Lauren will see you pretty much at everyone's restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so everyone can be a farmer champion. So, uh, but thanks again, guys. I appreciate Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Many thanks to Lauren and Bruce for joining me for this episode. So please visit the episode page or check the notes in your podcast app for the links to Farm to Restaurant and Bocalupo's website. This podcast is recorded all over our beautiful city and edited over on the east side of town by me, your host. Hello again. Our design is headed up by JJ Getz. And if you like what you hear, you can support the show right now on Patreon for just $5 a month. I'm your host, Ben Getz, and you've been listening to the Atlanta Foodcast. Stay hungry. <laughs>